I'm saying the same things that I've always said, maybe uh, in a different way now. Whereas I think if I'd have said these things 10 years ago, most of the people who I would consider friends would agree with me. Now a lot of them don't. In fact, I've lost friends over doing this kind of thing. People have decided that I'm something I'm not. And that's, that's they, they think because I'm attacking identity politics, I must have some far right leanings or something like that. And they imagine this sort of stuff about you. And that's very upsetting. Hello and welcome to Confessions. My name's Giles Fraser and this is the podcast where we talk to interesting people and try and uh, drill down into their core beliefs and work out what it is that makes them tick. And today with me, I'm very excited to say, we have Andrew Doyle, a.k.a. Lots of other things as well. We'll <laughs> yeah. talk about that yeah, in a minute. Okay. <laughs> uh, Andrew, who probably done more than anybody else to sort of explore the notion of woke and take the piss out of it. So we'll yeah. we'll be talking about that. Yeah, a lot of people are angry about that. But that's, <laughs> that's part of the fun, I suppose. But you, um, I say, um, uh, you know, you, you were often in a sort of behind pseudonyms, don't you? Yeah. I mean, you have the, 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 you were exposed quite I, recently as Titania McGrath. Yeah, that's right. I prefer it. I prefer being behind a, a mask, to be honest. Yeah. Like, I was exposed by a website called Chortle that found out somehow that I was, I was the, the, the person behind the character. But there was a real freedom to having the character and people not knowing it was me. Um, I, still, I, don't, I still do the character as I always did. It's just that now I get the abuse from people who hate the character <laughs> hate directed, directed at me. That's, yeah, the yeah, only, yeah. that's the only downside, really. But here, that's not the only... That's the, not the only uh, that's the only uh, sort of face mask that you wear as well. There's there's Jonathan Pye as well. And, yeah, so uh, I, I mean, I've co- I co-wrote Jonathan Pye for three years, so that's a, obviously another character that I, I was behind. And then there's a, even with my stand-up though, it's it's a persona that I'm performing on stage, even though it's my name and my face. Yeah, yeah, it's actually yeah. really not me. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I've, I I don't know why. I so I guess I just prefer being behind having that shield. Yeah. I, I haven't really thought about it, to be honest, but it is a preference. Let's do the you before okay. we do the masks. Fine. That's what right. I want to do. You'll so probably I'm... be able to get down to the bottom of it. No, I no, well, I, I just quite like to just like find out. So tell me, just tell me to start with, give me your, so where you grew up, mum and dad, family background, give me a sense of what that was. Okay. Uh, I grew up in the Midlands. I was born in Sandwell. Uh, lived in Warsaw for a time, which I believe you. Yeah, you, you yeah, were. yeah. Um, I um, uh, my parents. I suppose I had a really normal, generally normal background. You know, I was sort of lower middle class. Went to the local comp, was Catholic comp, um, and my parents were from a working class background. My dad uh, was a printer. He left school at fifteen, sixteen to become a printer, be apprentice as a printer. My mum was from Derry, in Northern Ireland. Uh, very, you know, very poor background. Um, so. You know, I often hear when when she talks about, you know, like sharing a bed with three of her sisters and stuff like that. I had nothing like, you know, she had a proper sort of poorer background, whereas I it's perfectly comfortable, perfectly fine, uh, perfectly normal. I think it's really average uh, what I had. Um, Roman Catholicism is around there. Well, I went to a convent school. I went to a, a convent school called Our Lady of Compassion. Then a Catholic secondary school, uh, then a Catholic sixth form college, actually. So I didn't right. have any... Non- and your mum's a Catholic. Oh, my, both my parents were Catholic. I was raised Catholic. I went right, to, right, I went, right. I, you know, I, I'm a Catholic. Yeah. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, so went. To, so I didn't really have many non-Catholic friends till university. Right, 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 right. So that's my, that's my background. Right. Um, and my mother moved back to Northern Ireland. Um, my, bro- my parents broke up when I was a kid. Uh, so it was largely her uh, when I was sort of post age of 11. Um, and then... Um, um, uh, she moved back to Derry, uh, and yeah, so that's and, and that's where all her brothers and sisters and all my cousins and what are, are the values you're picking up as a kid? Do you think that you're taking through into school? What sort of a, what sort of a young man were you? Child were you? I guess uh, it's that's a really interesting question. I never think about it. Um, I was I think I was a bit. I always like to make people laugh. I think that's definitely true. I my in fact one of my earliest memories. Now I come to think about it is when I was. Uh, 
uh, first year of primary school, like infant one, uh, doing an assembly and, and, and doing something. And it was something to do with fiddling with the buttons on someone's shirt, but it made the audience laugh. And I remember getting a real buzz out of it. And I think that must have informed something because I was always trying to make people laugh. Um, and that went right through. Um, Were you the school joker? Well, I was, I was, I was fat as well. So of course that. Were you? Yeah. So that makes it. Uh, I, I suppose I don't know. That's like a cliche, isn't it? But I was um, a larger kid, and I did make people. I did try and make people laugh. Um, I don't know why. I wouldn't like to analyse it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's just some. That's probably to do with ego, isn't it? I would imagine. <laughs> you have the power to make people laugh. It's a great thing to do, though, isn't it? I yeah, mean, it's like yeah, it's 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 fun. Um, but yeah, so I and, al- I always used to do that and studious as well. Is that right? Not really. Oh no. I I think as a kid I was a I was quite lazy. And okay. also the, the the school that I went to, we never did I never really did homework or anything like that. I never really worked. Um the homework I did, I remember copying other people's maths homework in the break <laughs> and stuff. And because the sort of school I went to, I mean, I've, I've taught since in private schools where they are on you if, if, if a kid is behind in anything. They weren't really like that in my school. I'm not saying they were bad teachers or anything, but it just wasn't that culture. So you could get away, especially if you were bright, you could get away with very little. And that's quite bad. In fact, I almost got thrown out of sixth form because I wouldn't turn up before midday. I, I, would, I, would, I just wouldn't do that. And um, it got to the point where my drama teacher used to pick me up. She went out. I mean, she was a brilliant woman. She went out of her way to pick me up. I was, and I. And I, you I, didn't get chucked out well, for I, turning up. Well, I was the main part in the school play, you see. But I, I, <laughs> I later learned that I was on the. They wanted to. The, the senior management wanted me out. Um, but so I wasn't a good student actually. And then when I got to university, I sort of started working during my undergraduate degree, during my English degree. I, that's when I, because I found things I loved. So you just about, you sort of just about got into university, as it were, not yeah, working I, too hard. I, I, I didn't, I didn't work hard till university, which is terrible, really. Um, and I sort of relied on my natural abilities to get through. And then when I got to university, uh, it is down to the fact that I English, found, English, do English. Is yeah, that right? I, at the start I was doing drama, but I changed course to the English course. And um, I ended up, I, it was actually Renaissance literature that I, I found. And I, I had a, a teacher there called uh, Claire Jowett, who was who's now a, a she's a professor. I can't remember where she is. Um, brilliant uh, Renaissance um, academic, and she got me really excited actually in in that whole area. And I um, started writing about it. Started getting good marks for it because I cared about it. So someone started then, telling you you're quite clever. It's yeah, the first that's time, it, and that's then it. suddenly you go, oh, this is that's it. And then I ended up doing a master's in Renaissance literature, which they didn't do at Aberystwyth, which is where I was, and so I had to go to York. Uh, but I got a scholarship to do it so I could do that. And then I wanted to do Renaissance poetry. So my doctorate was in Renaissance poetry. And again, I got a scholarship from the Arts and Humanities Research Board to go to Oxford to do that. And Oxford was the best place for that because they had, I wanted to do manuscript work. I wanted to, they had the Bodleian Library. They've got the biggest collection of We've just found out that we probably overlapped in Oxford in the did. same college. Yeah, we, did. we, we were probably... both, we were, I was at Wadham. From 2000 to 2004. Yeah, yeah. Which and you I, were there I was the there whole too. time. I was teaching philosophy then at the same time. And I was a part-time <laughs> lecturer and I often had lunch in the... the it was at the library. Do you remember the old library became yeah. the, where they had the yeah, lunches? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, We and probably ignored each... We might have sat and talked... Had, who knows? <laughs> who knows? It's all a bit of a blur, yeah, those no, years. No, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so what were you... Give me the sort of, like, quick version of what your PhD was. That's always a dangerous question to ask people because 15 minutes later... Oh, no, no. <laughs> I've, I've been, I've, you know, I mean, it's not something I use now. It's a... Yeah. Uh, um, it was about, um, specifically about three authors. It was about William Shakespeare, Sir Philip Sidney and Richard Barnfield, who no one will have heard of because no. he's a very obscure yeah. uh, Renaissance author. And um, and it was specifically about their poetry and it was about the idea of sexuality and gender 
in relation to their to their work. Um, Shakespeare and Barnford are the only two poets of that era who wrote love sonnets from one man to another. So they're quite interesting. And there's a lot of kind of homoerotic stuff in Philip Sidney's work as well. Um, even though he's a heterosexual man. So there's there's it, there's a lot of sort of interesting things there. And I wrote a thesis which was, which well, it must it worked, um, but I don't know if it's very good. I wouldn't go back and read it now. I think I'd be embarrassed. So you and sexuality, is that something that's developing through... Uh... Well, I, um, you know, it's never... I Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a key part of anyone's life, isn't it? And I was from a, a religious background, so I suppose I never... Uh, I'll tell you the, the truth is, I didn't realise I was gay uh, until probably 18. Right. Something like that. Right, right, right. I mean, I knew, I knew I was only attracted to men, but I didn't equate that with being gay. You didn't know that meant gay. That's I know that sounds really stupid, <clears throat> but I'm a, but that is absolutely well, the case. Well, 18... And then, 18, yeah. But not long after that, you're writing a PhD on, I know. on gay all, poetry. All as happened it were. very quickly. All happened wow. really quickly, yeah. yeah. Um, so I can't explain it, now, but that's the way it was. I have to tell you, there would be people listening to this who know you as Titania McGrath and yeah. know you as, uh, as the, the, the person who excoriates sort of lefty, as it were, yeah, yeah. wokeness. Um, you have impeccable woke. Credentials. Yeah, I guess I do. I guess I do because I mean, I went to Wadham, the wokest of all the colleges. Yes, it is. We used to um, sing "Free Nelson Mandela" at the right. end of uh, the end of dances that's long right. after. Yeah, they still free. they were still doing that when I was there. Yeah, um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You'd already got out. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, my background is you know, is I'm a left, I'm a lefty. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a gay man. Uh, I I was I was immersed in that whole kind of uh, post-structuralist stuff, Foucault and Derrida and all of that stuff, which oh, I really? which I studied and uh, and taught, and and of course all of that stuff is really uh, the underpin, the foundation of the current woke movement. Even though most people within the woke movement won't make that, a, that connection, but that's exact that's definitely where it's come. We'll from. come to that because that's okay. a really interesting sort of structural thing. But yeah. at the same time as you're doing this. The, the, your academic work, yeah. Your comedy stuff is—is is that beginning to develop? Are you still? Um, I was writing sketches, and um, I, I wrote some sketches for News Review, for instance, which is a, a sort of satirical show in London. Uh, I was writing plays from from an early age. I was writing plays from the age of uh, eighteen when I was at university, from my first year of university, comedic or otherwise. Um, and so I was always doing that. I started stand up though uh, later. It was when I um, had finished my doctorate. I moved to London. Uh, and I was living with an elderly woman called Angela who became a very good friend of mine. And she'd let me stay there for free uh, because she'd seen one of my plays and she said, well, come and stay with me. <coughs> and then um, I became a teacher because I had no money and I, and, and I, I, I needed to do... That was the only thing I, could, I thought I was qualified stand-up for. Stand-up must be just like... The first well, time you did stand-up. Well, I was... Yeah, well, I was doing stand-up while I was teaching, which is never a good thing either. Like, you get the kids <laughs> Googling me and they'd, they'd come in with reviews printed out. And, <laughs> and, of course, some of the quotations of my stand-up, out of context... That, I mean, in fact, one of the headmistresses I worked for got complaints from parents because they'd Googled me and they said, were you aware before you hired him? Uh, so, and what, yeah. was the, what was your... What was, did, you, did your act have a particular sort of style or...? Uh, it was... Mm, that's different. I, I think every stand-up, when they start out, end up, they end up sounding like the people they like the most, I think. Who were they? For me, Victoria Wood, 100%, was the, the, nice. the person who, as a child... I used to record her shows on VHS. I'd watch them every morning before school. I used to get up early so I could watch them again and again. I mean, I, it, it's embedded in my mind, the, the, her scripts, her rhythms. And so in my early stand-up, I, I, I know that rhythmically things are very similar to what she was doing. Um, uh, you know, I wouldn't compare myself to her. I think she's an absolute genius. What I'm saying is that I was mimicking 
her style. And of course, I think as, as a stand-up, you have to learn to find your own voice eventually. And so that just takes time. There's not a musical aspect to all of your oh, yeah, I mean, I, singing I, and stuff. I, and... I can't sing at all. I can't play an instrument. I write musicals, though. I write, um, I write the lyrics. Because okay. I always wrote comedy songs for News Review and things like that. Okay. And then um, I now work uh, with a musician called Craig Adams. We write musicals. We've had a few musicals on. And, and a guy called Duke Special, who's a Belfast-based musician, we've written a... Uh, adaptation of Huckleberry Finn and we've done Gulliver's Travels and uh, we've done a one called Paperboy which is on this August at the Lyric Theatre in Belfast so we, we work together so I do that I'm a lyricist yeah. and a, a, a scriptwriter. so there is a musical element which I'm sure was informed by Victoria Wood because Victoria Wood's lyrics are so yeah. brilliant yeah. and they have that kind of Noel Coward quality a, a, about them and I think it's from that that I learnt that's that, how to do that most definitely her. I'm just fascinated by the sort of um, the, the standing up in front of I guess maybe it's the sort of because I preach, mm. and that's part of what I do. Obviously, yeah. it's entirely different, but there's there's there must be crossovers. There with are standing up in front of a group of people, having to capture their attention. There's definitely and, crossovers. You know, I mean, the priest when I was going, one of the priests, Father Simpson, was hilarious. I remember him being really funny <laughs> at the pulpit, and that's the thing. Like what you're doing is it, it is a performance. Obviously, it's it, the intention is very different, and the purpose is very different. Um, but you still have to hold an audience, don't you? Yeah. And you and you still also have to hold the authority of the room. You know, and that's that's sort of a lot of what stand up is about is is being the focus and 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 controlling the room in a way. Were you taking the piss out of anything particular? Was, was there I, a was there a moral focus? I mean, now there's a very strong moral focus. Yeah, which come to. I I think stand up is always better when you've got something to say. And I think my problem is I didn't really have anything to say. Okay. And I think that's the that's the common thread of all, of of the vast majority of young stand ups. This is why. Um, I think Victoria Wood was once said that you know there's no real point in stand up till till you're after thirty, and I kind of sympathise. I think that's I think you know I don't totally agree, but I think there is a point to that, which is when you when you've got something to say, you'll find that a lot of comedians they they spend a lot of time uh, doing you know doing their stand up, going along, learning the craft, and then they sort of hit on something that they actually want to say, and it's the coincidence, it's the, that that sort of concatenation of of of, of uh, having something to say with having the ability to say it well. Uh, and, and the ability to make people laugh. This is going to be a very strange comparison, and you might well reject this, but I once heard Owen Jones say something about writing, which is, yeah. say, I'm not a writer. It's just I've got something to say, yeah, and yeah. writing is my way of doing it. Yeah, exactly. And, it wasn't, and there are some people who go into doing columns and they just want to write columns but they haven't got anything to say they're just like the art of the craft of yeah, writing yeah. it but you can't do that if you haven't actually got a, a, a you know something you, that's you some sort of life experience exactly that's going out the, the, the best thing is to, i mean you, you've got to just do things a lot in order to get good at them you know and, and i think that's a very good point about i mean owen jones's first book chavs um is is not brilliantly written uh in terms of the craft of it but it, it's pa- quite powerful he doesn't see himself as a writer that's no, what he no. said to me so I, it is quite but it is it is quite a powerful book because you can tell there's a, a real passion behind it, and yeah, that's why it exactly works. Right. And, and I think, um, and that's and uh, same, you know, I think that's that's the case with a lot of people. Whereas I, I've, I've always seen myself as a writer, but I think some of the stuff I used to write and some of the stuff I used to say as a stand-up were pretty shallow, and 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 and, and actually looking back uh, are not of much value. Um, but I think now that I have, uh, you know, things now. You know, I wake up in the morning and I'm 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 an, I'm I'm annoyed about things, or I want I want to address certain issues, or I see injustices, and I want to do something. So about where did it. all this start? So let's just let's see this. Uh, let me let, help me to see your your movement from somebody who wants to make people laugh but doesn't have a sort of as it were I said a moral purpose or whatever it is yeah. to now where you're sort of like a you're a warrior. You know? Well, <laughs> um, well, it, it's interesting because I. 
I don't think I think my my views on things have refined over the years as as they always do and and, and have changed in certain ways. But broadly speaking, the things that I really care about, the things like like free speech and individual autonomy and 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 and, and empathy and all of those things have remained consistent. Uh, I've always tried to challenge myself and 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 where things don't stand up, I try and change my mind. But those things have remained consistent. But I but I very much see that the world has shifted around me uh, to a point where I, f- I've, I, I feel that the left has sort of lost its mind. I think the, the, the left as it currently stands isn't really left wing at all. And so therefore, I'm saying the thing, things that I've always said, maybe uh, in a different way. Um, but um, it now, whereas I think if I'd have said these things 10 years ago, most of the people who I would consider friends would agree with me. Now, a lot of them don't. In fact, I've lost friends over doing this kind of thing. Have you? Thing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I've, I, people are People have decided that I'm something I'm not. And that's that's they they think because I'm attacking identity politics, I must have some far right leanings or something like that. And they imagine this sort of stuff about you. Um, And that's very upsetting. Uh, But also, there's not much you can do about that. If if, you can't rationalize with somebody who's who's fighting a specter of their imagination, that person does not exist. Uh, So I can't be in a position of defending someone who doesn't exist. So let's let's try and let's try. You your latest book's woke. Yes. um, And, you know, it's. it, it's very funny, and uh, people have loved it, and people have hated it, and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Help me to like understand the structure of woke. You know, what what is the sort of essence of this wokeness, which that, okay. that you so <laughs> despise? Um, it is the idea of being woke is being very sort of socially aware. Um, um, I suppose as a I suppose as a concept, it should be a really good thing. It's the idea of obviously being very aware of, of minority groups and people who are disadvantaged and people who are marginalised. Uh, which I like to think I am. Like so, those things are, are you know are standing up against racism, homophobia, sexism, transphobia, etc., which I agree with wholeheartedly. Right. So there's all of that going on. Um, but the other aspect of the woke uh, movement is that it doesn't see people as individuals. It sees them in terms of their collective groups, and that I think is incredibly damaging uh, and divisive. The other problem with the woke movement is it doesn't uh, rarely. Uh, considers class and of course class is the the main leveling uh, aspect of of, of of opportunity and I know because I've taught at uh, very very posh schools and I've seen the difference you know I went to a school where you know people went on work experience wherever they could grab it where I went to school but the, when I taught at these schools you know the girls were coming in and saying you know I've just oh daddy got me an internship at GQ or got me yeah, in, yeah, or, yeah. or I, I'm at the old Vic or something like this and they they're I'm, I'm Do you know that Walter Ben Michaels book, The Trouble with Diversity? I don't know it. Oh my word! I you must read, read it. Go actually. away okay. straight away tomorrow. Yeah. Um, he's um, he's an academic in 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 the states, and he taught taught at Harvard, I think. And yeah. And he said that you know within the the class there, you can get every single diversity, as it were, apart from class. Right. Class is the one that's never mentioned. Money's never mentioned. And it's really and, odd because when you have, for instance, the BBC who advertise for they they put some internships out for non-whites only. Right now, of course, what that means is if you're a white person. From council estate with absolutely nothing you are not eligible to apply by implication because you are a privileged individual those people aren't privileged and what that does is generate incredible resentment and what you also end up with of course is a, a lot of uh, privately educated BAME people who are already okay in terms of their contacts and, and all the rest of it they don't need that leg up and actually um, the ethnic minority people from a working class background are disadvantaged as well so it's not helping anyone you know the thing is if people you, if, from Samwell and yeah. uh, um, from where well, exactly. from your background from, I know it, that part of the world if you put if you if you were serious about quotas if you if you just advanced a quota system where you said i mean look seven percent of the country are privately educated right so if you said in the bbc let's only have seven percent of the employees from from private schools which would, <laughs> right? which would massively change the demographic yes. and if you did that in the media because think about it i mean the privately educated people are overrepresented in every major 
aspect, yeah. you know, j- uh, journalism, yeah. media, arts, everything, yeah. right? And if you had that, if you, I'm not ad- advocating this, but yeah, I'm just yeah. saying, if you ha- were serious about diversity, you would implement that. Because what that would then do is that would solve all your problems in terms of BAME representation, gay representation, everything else, because as we know, uh, BAME people are overrepresented in the, in, in the lower mediums, so you, so in the in lower classes. So you would solve all that stuff and you would have class parity, but they're not really interested in that. Clearly. So, so what? So what are what are what? Are, what what is the social justice warrior? I, it used to be called political correctness, didn't it? It's not. It's not yeah, called that uh, so much anymore. It, well, I don't use the phrase political correctness because I I always associate political correctness with that sort of nineteen eighties movement of saying, look, can we not say call people faggots anymore? Can we not you know? Can we not be rude to people anymore? This you know, is good. That's this exactly, is a good thing. This is a good a, thing. I think it's a great thing. I'm all for decorum and politeness. In fact, I think it's really really key, and that's why. Political correctness is probably the right term, but I don't use it because then you get people saying, oh, you're one of these PC gone mad people. Yes. Which I'm not, because if PC just means politeness, as say Yasmin Alibi Brown says in her book, she says that, why, why, you know, it's just politeness. If that's the case, then I agree with political correctness. I don't think that's what it is really now. I think what it is now is, is a, a means to police what people say uh, beyond just politeness. It, it, you know, it's, 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 it's to do with ideology, thinking the right way. You know, now you have people being uh, investigated by the police for uh, disagreeing with their view- people's views on trans-, trans issues, for instance. That should never happen in a free society. We should be able to have the discussions. And uh, people should be able to disagree politely. But there's something, there's something, even, there's something even more corrupting about woke, um, I wonder, whether mm-hmm. it's something about self-righteousness. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, and self-righteousness, I mean, self-righteousness is, is, first of all, the thing that people have quite rightly taken the piss out of for years. It's yeah. why you take the piss out of the priest and the church, because yeah. self-righteousness is something. But the new self-righteousness isn't religion. The new self-righteousness is some of the area that you're talking about. But it about. is a religion, isn't it? It is a religion, because the, because these people don't think, they they, they don't accept, re, they're not reasonable. They can't. You can't rationalise. They have a worldview, and they have that terrifying certainty that comes with uh, religious zealotry. Um, and I really worry about that. And the other thing is, of course, it's such a bourgeois movement. So the vast majority of people who you see writing uh, articles in The Guardian, etc., about about this kind of thing or, or uh, advancing this world, are, most of them are privately educated and have this sort of background, and yet they are bleating on about how victimised they are. Now, that to me is hilarious. That's why I talk about it, because I think it's really fun. That's why Titania is from a really rich background. You know, she went to private school. She, she lives in Kensington. She's got another house in the Cotswolds. Oh, is that right? Can yeah, we think? She... Now, you've brought in a picture. You've brought yeah. in a, an oil painting yeah. of Titania. So I have this, to... is, this is the... I, um... had, <laughs> I had this commission because um, this... Uh... Right, when I set up the t- Twitter account... Um, I, I, a friend of mine, Lisa, Lisa Graves, who used to run Godfrey Elfwick. I don't know if you know that account on Twitter. Well, uh, she she created this little avi, this picture, and of course it's not very high resolution. And then all of a sudden it blew up, and and all of a sudden her image is appearing in newspapers and stuff. And I don't have a picture, so she painted this. She's a really great artist. Okay, so can, let's see if I can get this out. So here we go. Uh, uh, this. Is... <laughs> so that's her. And Was that's... it modelled on anybody? No, uh, no. I mean, so what Lisa did is she. Um, amalgamated features of multiple women. I see, I <laughs> so see. We couldn't have someone who had a likeness to anyone. So, okay. So this person okay. does not exist. Okay, right, right, right. Uh, but it's a great painting. Isn't yes, it? great painting. <laughs> so she lives in Kensington. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So she's privately educated. Yeah, very much so. And okay. uh, she's uh, she's polyracial, so she often switches race. Um, depending she's on... polyracial. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously she's white. But she, uh, she, she says that race is an identity like anything else. Uh, she's ecosexual, so she... 
She only has relationships with plant life. Um, she, uh, she's. Uh, <laughs> Don't make me laugh about she's, this. Uh, <laughs> Don't make me laugh because you'll get me going, and I'm going to. I'm not going to interview you. She, if you'd make me laugh. She's such that kind of. Uh, you know how identitarian used to be a term about the. It originated in the far right in France, and now I see sort of identitarianism as being a. a there's a, a leftist. So explain sort of that word, identitarian. Uh, it's someone who who, who uh, values the notion of identity over everything else. Identitarianism initially was to do with national extreme nationalism, because you think about identity politics on the right is about nationalism. Is a, is a, you know, it, it, yeah. and I oppose identity politics on the right and the left. I think on the right it takes a form of this kind of xenophobic, uh, jingoistic nationalism, and on the left it takes a form of this kind of. So if I describe myself as a Christian, and I think Christianity is important to my right. identity. Yeah. Is that identity politics? No. no. What, no why because, is that not identity I'm, politics? Well, because I'm not suggesting that identity isn't important to people. I see. Uh, what I'm suggesting is, is if that is the uh, the prism through which you view everything. Then I think you're playing identity politics, and if you if you collect if you br- group people into their collectives according to that. So I'm going to treat the Christians this way. I'm going to treat the Muslims this way, and the Jewish people this way. I mean, that to me, that's identity politics, right? And you're forgetting about the individual. You're forgetting about that that those those groups, although they do exist and there is a, cohe- a cohesion to them, uh, there there are individual characteristics within it. But what so, is left of the, just a philosophical question yeah. to this? If you strip away all of these things called identity, your sexuality, your religion, your yeah. all of the your politics yeah. and so forth. There's an idea that you have that there's some authentic me that's outside of all of that stuff, but actually all those identities are what form they do, yeah. you. Yeah. So there isn't a sort of real you that's beyond all those identities. Those identities are indeed part of you, aren't they? They, they are part of you. They, you know, I mean, I, I suppose what you're asking is they're a kind of an essential self. Um, but you're which, trying to strip away all these identities to get to, yes, are you? Which I think is slightly unlikely. Well, no, but I think... OK, so for instance... Um, the, the gay rights movement, the, uh, or, or what has now become the LGBTQIA plus movement, or whatever, right? So th- the obsession there with the idea is this is what we are, uh, I think is damaging to the individual self. I do not consider myself, for instance, first and foremost, a gay man. I'm, I'm a man who happens to be gay. Right. And so so that's, the, that's the right. different way of looking at it, I right. think. Right. These things are important aspects of who you are, but they are not the only thing. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and the trouble with it is it's, you start then seeing people and making assumptions about people. So, for instance, Kanye West supporting Donald Trump. Well, all of a sudden he's, he's ostracized from the black community, right? Because black people aren't supposed to think that way. I see. Or, or a, a gay person who would vote Tory. You know, it's like, yes, well, yes. is it not, you know, I really worry about people when, when, you, when, you, when you forget about the individual. The individual to me is everything. Right. Because everybody, everybody is different and we all have our different uh, yeah, yeah. ideas of the world. And I hate the idea of being bunched together. So and, and, and in fact, judged by something, that, something about you that you can't change. That's what I. That's what I mean. I mean, it's it's, it's the Martin Luther King idea. The content of the character is more important than the color of the skin. Yeah. But they. But the the woke movement inverts that. I mean, he would be no fan of the woke movement yeah. because because it it, it it is involved. It, it it's tied up with judgment about what you are, not who you are. So earlier you said something really interesting about um, how some of those sort of philosophical, maybe French movement philosophers of the 70s, Derrida and yeah, that yeah. sort of thing, were the sort of hinterland, or the you know, the foothills of, of yeah. all of this wokeness. I think a lot of stuff is anticipated in academia. I think that's yeah. where it sort of comes from. And, and uh, yeah, the, Der- the Derrida worldview and the Foucault and this yeah. kind of thing, that there is no such, there's no inherent truth beyond the language with which it is expressed. And that's, that's where it comes from. Um, and you'd end up with... Uh, you know, when I when I was doing my English degree, uh, that was sort of 
the norm, you know, and what you would do is you would sort of try, you know, deconstruct the text. Like they say, deconstruct it. You do sort of try and tease out the contradictions, but also uh, try and detect elements of uh, sexism, misogyny, homophobia, that kind of thing. That's that's effectively what you were doing, which isn't in of itself uh, an interesting way to approach a, a literary text. Everything's actually. a power relation. Exactly. So it's un- the idea is that everything can be explained away through power structures. Yeah. Now, the problem with that is, of course, power does matter. And we all know it does. And, and any any sort of relationship or, or, or interaction has an element of status to it. So we all know that that is true. Uh, the problem with the woke movement is that it feels that it can quantify power and it feels that it can redress injustices that it perceives that may or may not be there. So first thing it does is it identifies uh, power imbalances that it, it sees, but, but, but we can't be sure of there anyway. Uh, and then it tries to redress them somehow. But you can't quantify this stuff. It doesn't solve everything. There's so many factors that, that you would need to address. Um, and it's that kind of ideological approach where you think, if I, if I subscribe wholesale to this ideology, I can solve everything. It's, it's a reductive worldview, isn't it? That's why I wouldn't sort of, uh, you know, uh, pin my views to a particular set of rules. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Um, you know, and, and you know, they, so, so to give an example, uh, people will say, well, uh, straight white male academics, that's a problem. You know, because they they are inherently privileged and they they perpetuate these power structures. Well, why? Some might, some might not. You don't know. I mean, there was a, there was a scheme, wasn't there, where older white male academics were being mentored by young black women. Yes. Like, what are you doing? Yes. What does that achieve? Absolutely nothing. It's, it's, it doesn't make any sense. Yes. Um, and, and the idea is that that's going to solve problems. No, it isn't. And and that's because the woke worldview is based on this utopian worldview. If we can if we can fix what people say, if we can fix the words that they say, if we can if we can change the way they think. Uh, uh, we'll be able to solve all the world's problems and everyone will be equal. That's not how humanity works. So the difference between you and I, I'm beginning, it's becoming coming clearer into focus for me, yeah. is that you're much more of an individualist than mm. I am. I have, a, I have a much more a sense of the sort of, I guess, the we has priority over the Got I. Got it. Okay, so, yeah. And you're slightly different. Now, one of the things when I look at woke and I think of the problems, I actually think of it as a sort of species of radical individualism so this is different to you yeah which is that my identity doesn't grow organically out of something that i am or or but it but it's somehow plucked off a shelf in some strange you know as if i could just simply choose yeah, yeah. to be this or simply choose to be a different color or simply choose i mean yeah. that's the comedy surely the comedy of, the, of titania mcgrath is that she'll decide one day that she chooses to be um, a, a person of a different colour, yeah. or and that's and that's that's the whole idea of the individual chooser yes. as being at the heart of the political worldview. Yeah, isn't but it's it? not. It's it's but it's actually incredibly conformist. Uh, you know, I mean, it's 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 because what the choice is based on is uh, what way can I most uh, maximise and capitalise on my victimhood. Uh, and so the choice is about, uh, in her case, you know, she will choose to be a marginalised figure. She she loves it. She can't get enough of it, even though she's got absolutely everything on a plate. And that, that, to me, is what's damaging about it. I mean, you know, I read the, the Afiwa Hirsch book, uh, British, and which is a book in which she, uh, you know, is basically making a case for her own victimhood, uh, in spite coming from a, a hugely wealthy in, uh, family uh, and having so much privilege. And to me, uh, you know, I'm sure she's a very good human being. I'm not, I'm not knocking her. What I'm saying is it's a worldview that I just can't get on board with because I, I find it vulgar, actually. And yet you do... But you, but, I, but and yet you do sympathise and uh, and in, in you know entirely yeah. with 
um, the whole idea that there is racial injustice. That yeah, well, there is. But there's a difference between standing up to racial injustice, which, which the vast majority of, of civilised people do, and, and manufacturing it where it doesn't exist. I mean, that's the real, the real problem. Let's not give an example of this. So I did a tweet uh, last August, it was, and it was I'd taken a still from Mary Poppins, and it was the bit where she's got chimney soot on her face. And I said, this is disgusting blackface. Uh, look at Judy Andrews blacking up. That's right. a joke. It's not yeah. real. Yeah. 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 The right. New York Times this February wrote an article saying exactly that, saying, look, this, look, look how racist Mary Poppins is. There's this scene where she's in blackface. Right. Now, why anticipate so- soot on her soot face? On her face. Now, <clears throat> I, now, that's obviously got nothing to do with racial politics at all. And anyone who's seen Mary Poppins will know that Mary Poppins isn't a racist piece of work. Right. I did that as a joke. Mm. Four months later, it becomes reality. That that's scared. But. And everyone knows that that's not racist. Everyone knows. The, the same publication uh, picked up an, uh, an old um, image of Welsh miners uh, from, uh, I think, 100 years ago or something. And they had, obviously, coal in their face. And, and it made the same point that this is actually racist. This is blackface, right? So, so these are people who are seeking racial injustice where it doesn't exist. And, and then you have to ask the question, why are they doing that? Okay? I know I don't want to speculate about people's motives, but there is real power and currency in being victim, being the victim. And that is what I mistrust. And the problem is when you have people who are actual victims, people who are on the poverty line, yeah, people, so are, going is, to, people is, are going to food banks, question, isn't it? right? Yeah. And they're being told that they're privileged. When you have people like Mama Bergdorf saying that even a homeless person can have white privilege, right? How do you... Who, who said that, sorry? Monroe Bergdorf is an LGBT activist who uh, became a Labour advisor, advisor for Jeremy Corbyn, and... Um, uh, appeared on this week with Andrew Neil and, and said that the white race was the most, um, what did she say now, the most um, uh, violent force of nature on earth, right? Incredibly divisive. But a homeless uh, person who's white has privilege. She yeah. said a white, per- a, a homeless person can still have white privilege. That's a verbatim quotation. Um, now, that is going to generate an awful lot of resentment, especially coming from someone who's so uh, privileged as her, you know, very sort of, uh, she was a model, very photogenic, uh, a very wealthy background, all the rest of it. And that, to me, that does not help society. That, that makes things a lot worse. And the problem is that, and here's the real problem, I think, is that it's probably well-intentioned. So people like uh, Manuel Bergdorf, people like the, the, the Afiwa Hirsches of the world, these sorts of people who advance this victimhood narrative but who are not themselves underprivileged, um, they probably think they're doing the world of good. They probably think they are standing up to, to all these horrible injustices, but they are actually making things worse. And what my real worry is, is that they are creating the conditions within which the far right can thrive. And that's the real worry I have about people this think you're People think Titania McGrath, or they think you, are hard right. I mean, that's one yeah. of the things that's... Yes, because I uh, think that you should reserve the, cons- the, the application of the term racist, fascist, Nazi, homophobe, to where it is due. I think uh, there's a real danger in this kind of concept creep where we, these words are promiscuously uh, bandied about. Until they they lack any meaning anymore, yeah. I think that's so dangerous. And um, you know, if you if you nobody was ever persuaded by being insulted. If you if you just call people racist, if you if you insist, as many people have, that seventeen point four million people who voted for Brexit are racist, what do you think is going to happen? You know, what what kind of are you really interested in healing society? Because that that to me is incredibly damaging and dangerous. So how does Titania heal society? Right. Well, that's it. So. Well, she herself uh, is an exaggeration of the type of person I'm talking about. She will call you a Nazi at the drop of the hat. 
you know, she will she will she will uh, throw out fascist nazi whatever if you don't it, it, you know if you don't subscribe exactly to her worldview and the irony of course is she's probably a bit racist right she so she talks about how she's got an affinity for people of color because when she grew up most of her staff were filipinos right so that that's the kind of thing she'll say right, right. with no self awareness at all and yes. i imagine she has got yeah, these yeah, yeah. she harbors genuine kind of um, resentments uh, the reason why I think it's important to you mock... talk about her, I'm going to interrupt you. But you talk about like like you know her really well. I do know her really well. Right? Yeah. I, do, I, do, <laughs> I, do, I, I do speak about her as though she's a different person. So yeah, anyway, no, it's can... like real people listening to this. Like who who is this person? It's like yeah, you you made her up. But I can't. I I, I do I, when I write as her, I get into her mindset. I can't see her because yes. she's just not me. Yes. Um, but people would say that because I'm 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 mocking it. I'm therefore endorse you see okay so let me let me try and break it down like this so so you've got these people who who, who do genuinely believe and i do think they genuinely believe, they are they are the, the 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 people on the front line they are the people at cable street they are the people who are standing up against fascists and racists but a lot of these are imaginary fascists they're fascists of their own creation they're sp- scrapping with ghosts um and because there are real fascists out there of course yes not many but they're yes. out there. Yes. And and Tommy Robinson uh, only got he didn't get he wasn't you know he didn't get elected as an MEP. You know these. these so. No no the 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 far right is a small small movement, but they are growing right. Yeah. Yeah. So so I'm not denying the reality of that. Um, but the problem that I have is when everyone when you when when for instance David Lammy says that anyone in the ERG is a what did he say worse than Nazis. Right. So, so I mean, all people who support Brexit are, are, are fascists, right? This is a this is a real problem because it's it's just not true. That's the first thing. It's not true, and it, it's much more likely to make people uh, less open to persuasion. That's the other thing. I, that is. But but I mock because I'm mocking the people who do this and and misapply these terms. The 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 bizarre logic then is that I must be supporting the fascists and the racists, right? Yes, yes, yes. Now that's. A huge misinterpretation, right? There must, of course, be on the other side people who love, quote unquote, uh, Titania's mm. uh, stuff um, coming in from the right, right, you know, saying "Go, go, go!" Well exactly. done, you take. Exactly. And actually, that you, 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 you're just as just as uh, hostile to them. You must in hate a, that. In a you? sense, she's more hostile to them because um, obviously she's mocking leftist identi- identity politics, right? Um, but the people who take her seriously, the people who fall for it, tend to be on the right and sometimes on the far right. And they'll come in and she'll 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 keep arguing with them in character. And then what I often do is I screenshot the, the debates and I put them out there, which, of course, completely humiliates these people who, who have uh, who have uh, fallen for it. And it also exposes their ludicrous views. So I think that that's doing a good thing. So what I like to do in that sense is I am mocking. I, basically, I'm mocking extremes on either side. Because normal left-wing people are, have a sense of class consciousness and they're not about... Then They don't care about this stuff. They don't care about um, identity politics and, and how you identify in, in these particular but, but ways. So, so when you're being so, cheered on by homophobes... Right, exactly, you know, yeah. That must, as a gay man, that must be... A, you know, you're, you're sort of like placing yourself... Psych- well, I have to say psychologically, doing Twitter all the time. So You must place yourself in a, in a, in a place... It must... Damage, but it must, it must, it must be difficult. Well, I get this a lot. Like, do. like, how do you feel about this person who's retweeted you, for instance? And this is someone who I uh, say it's someone I disagree with on absolutely everything, and I feel that they are a genuine uh, bigot. Um, yeah, but I, I, you know, I cannot be responsible for someone else's misinterpretation of my work, right? And I think uh, what I'm doing is very, very clear. Um, and that's exactly the sort of person I mock. And if you're interested in what I believe, you can always read the articles I write out of character where I very clearly say what I think about these people. I mean, you know, I'm very, very opposed to the far right. Um, 
but the the mistake that people make is that they think that if I if I joke about this stuff and if someone misinterprets what I'm saying, that that is in some sense doing damage. They usually get mocked for misinterpreting. Yeah, I, I guess I'm asking two things slightly okay. different to that. Okay. What I'm what I'm asking is first of all, um, this is all look. It's very funny, and I've laughed at it a lot. But it's also very conflict-driven. You know, this, yeah, this sure. is all around conflict and so forth. So there's two things I want to ask about the conflict nature of this. One is, um, you know, do you really see bringing people together through conflict? I guess is that is that possible? Yeah. And secondly, how you personally deal with a, a life of that sort of you know uh, Twitter. Agro, yeah, constantly, constantly being attacked and being a part of that attack. Yeah, that yeah. must have it a toll. On oh, it does. Hundred percent, it does. Um, so, which question should I answer? Well, first? okay. So let's do, let's do the first one, the agro stuff. Yeah, the second so one that, does grow out of that. That is very interesting. Um, insofar as this is relatively new to me, I suppose when I was co-writing the Jonathan Pye character, that you know, we would every now and then put something out there. Uh, for instance, we we wrote a piece about Hillary Clinton uh, blaming her for the loss of the election and, and saying she was a terrible candidate. And that opened us up to a lot of um, attacks. Um, Titania, of course, because the most vicious things I've... I, I mean, I've said this before, but I will say it again. The most vicious things I've ever seen on social media have either come from that kind of racist far-right group or the ultra-woke leftist. And, and if anything they can be more brutal and vicious because, of course, they're, they're, their target is often to destroy your career, publicly shame, uh, and they won't stop and they won't allow an apology and they'll just completely try and destroy people's livelihoods and everything because of a perceived disagreement. Often a slight disagreement. It's often people from their own side. who You know, it's 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 that sort of thing. Claire Fox over... Uh, right. At, at her standing as a Brexit... Exa- exactly. So, so now we have this guilt by association thing. So Claire Fox is there seen on a platform with Nigel Farage and suddenly they're identical even though everything that she said... I mean, if you bothered, to listen to what she's talking about, then you would understand the principle. Um, so it's that it's that kind of uh, uh, dangerous, poisonous thing, and you see it very clearly on on Twitter. And I've got used to it now. So so I just I will I will always argue with someone on Twitter if they come at me in a civil way, you know, and and if they if they express disagreement, I don't have an issue with that. But when when they are arguing some with a figment of their imagination, there's nothing I can do. Or if they if they just come in and say you're a, you're a Nazi or like. I just won't engage with that because that's there's no point to that. You know, that's that's their own problem that they have they have to deal with, and you become immune to it. There's going to be an inexhaustible supply of idiots out there, and and when you are exposed on social media, everyone I don't believe get... you're immune to it. I don't believe you can be immune. Well, it, no, no, not immune, it, but, but but, but uh, sort of numb to it. I see. Um, I think you have to. I think anyone who becomes... It has its cost. It must have a toll. Well, yeah, but, 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 but you're a stand-up comic. I mean, any stand-up comic right, has right. to have a very thick skin. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I teach stand-up comedy at the Soho Theatre, and, and one of the things I say to people is... That you, one of the first things I say is you've got to develop a thick skin. Because whatever you do, there's going to be... If you do it well, people are going to hate what you do. Comedy is such yes. a divisive thing. If if, if 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 you are pleasing everyone as a comic, you're probably a very bland comic. Yeah. Right? So, so and particularly with satire, right? Satire is 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 designed to i mean that that book you know I, I i it's there to entertain some and annoy others right so it's going to be polarizing people are going to if they hate it they really hate it and then they hate you personally and they attack you personally i'm having very very personal attacks uh, throw my way of course i don't like it i'm a human being yeah, no, yeah, none of yeah, us do yeah, yeah. but you but, have to have a thick skin otherwise you shouldn't be in the game i mean i'm i'm i am responsible for putting myself out there and if i can't take that i shouldn't do that yeah. so i take responsibility for that um I'm not going to pretend that I don't have an emotional reaction to it, but I'm better at dealing with it now. I, you know, I, 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 I know, I understand why you're asking the question, but 
I, you know, but, but I think years of stand-up helps because all of us as stand-up comics have bad gigs and all of us have people go online and, and lay into us. I mean, that's just part of it. So you have to get used to it or get out of the business. And in terms of, um, you know, what, what you're happy to joke about and what you're not happy mm. to joke about, I know this is a standard question for comedians, yeah. but do you have a very clear sense of where that line is? Yeah. As in, I, 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 and I do think most comedians do, is that I always think about what I am trying to say. And I'm like, uh, it's about being honest with yourself. It, you know, I know if I'm, if I'm getting a, a cheap laugh, I, kn- I know when that happens. And sometimes I'll do it, sometimes, um, because I don't think comedy, I, I think there's a place for that in comedy, actually. Um, <laughs> you know, we I, all love a cheap laugh. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I, I guess where I draw but the line. What does cheap mean? Does pe- che- there's uh, a punching down, punching up type. Okay, of so the punching down, punching up thing is really interesting. So uh, I think the distinction. I have said this before. I think uh, often com- com- there's this idea that there's a rule in comedy that you have to punch up, and sometimes I think if we're being honest with ourselves, we laugh when there's cruelty. I, th- yeah. I think so. Yeah. Uh, the one of the examples I, I, I often mention is when when. Um, Simon Raven was the novelist. Simon Raven was contacted by his wife, who was starving and and asking him for money. And he sent a telegram back saying, "saying I've got no money. Eat the baby," right? Which is a terrible thing to say. Right, in a very, you see, you had to cover your mouth right, there, right? right? So it's funny, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But that's a real woman with a real child who's who's struggling, right? But, so, so what I, so what I'm saying is, I don't when I'm doing satirical work in my own head in terms of justifying it to myself, I only punch up. So the woke. The attacking the woke movement is punching up because they are very powerful people. They have a lot of clout. They end careers. They hound people. That they I harass understand. people. That right? I understand. I agree. And with you. the worst thing about them is they think they're the underdogs. Yes. And that's what makes them so powerful and yeah. difficult to under to undermine. So yeah. I do it through satire and comedy. Yeah. Right. So that's punching up. The misinterpretation of that is, oh, you're mocking gay people. Look at that. You've mocked gay people. No, I'm not. I'm mocking the paternalistic people who think they're looking out for all gay people and can speak on their behalf and be offended on their behalf. That's the target. Right, so that's and that's clear. I shouldn't have to explain that. Mm. But the, the 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 people who've hated it, I'm afraid, and I would say this, wouldn't I? But they have misinterpreted that that basic thing. Um, but so, the punching down. So but just, the punching just, down. The okay, punching down on. is interesting because you yeah. said that sometimes you do do it. We yeah. all do it. And, we do and that, the thing don't about we? that is, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but we're also we also acknowledge that there's there's a, there's a moral problem with that. Yeah, there, there is. is. That that it's proximate to bullying. That it is. That yeah. that's what. Yes, exactly. That's what I don't do. So it is a form of bullying. So there is that moral. There is that moral problem with like you know the people who say I was only joking. Yeah, yeah, is, absolutely. You know, watches bullies the world over. Say I was absolutely, only joking. Yeah. So, so I don't yeah. do that. And I think any <clears throat> any you know virtually every stand up comic will go through this process of thinking. Yeah. You know, uh, oh, can I justify that? Is that? I mean, I you know, ultimately, I think things like if you're a celebrity, if you're in the public eye, you're going to be fair game for comedians. That's what we do, right? We mock the the people who are who are in power. Right. So I do that. Um, But would I make fun of, you know, someone who is a victim, a genuine victim? No, I wouldn't. Uh, So in a way that the key thing in your work is to isolate a difference between those who are genuine victims and those who claim victimhood in order to express some sort of claim upon other people. But what I wouldn't do, that's my own standards that I set for myself. Yes. What I wouldn't do, which is I'm afraid what I think lots of comedians are doing, is saying, no, this is what you must do. You can't joke about this and you can't joke about that. I would defend anyone's right to joke about whatever they want to, even if it's cruel, because that's their choice. It's nothing to do with me. My my view is that I won't do it. That's my standard that I set for myself. And well, why I can't you, to just just to be clear, why why can't you challenge other people when they do that why, why do you feel... i can you... and okay. i can i can critique and i can mock and i can everything but what i what i won't do is impose it 
or attempt well, to you impose don't it. Have any power to do that? So I mean, that would only. Well, yeah, but government. some people do have power to impose it. For instance, if you, if you if you if you read Kevin Hart's old tweets, get upset and make sure he doesn't work at the Oscars anymore. Then you are imposing something on someone which you had no right to do. What you had a right to do is say, no, this isn't. I don't. I don't like this. Or complain or attack or whatever or criticize. Um, when you go to the police because of a joke. I mean, look. Let's not forget that um, people really don't. Uh, they don't seem to be aware of the extent of this. I mean, people are routinely investigated by the police for jokes. People have served prison time for jokes they've posted on Facebook, right? This, <coughs> this really matters. Uh, and uh, the jokes that I'm talking about, I don't like. Uh, I don't think they're funny. I mean, there's one guy, unemployed teenager. They're always the same. There's always unemployed teenagers, working class people, right? So they get... Uh, they, in this case, where he cut and pasted a joke from uh, a website called Sickopedia. And the idea of that website, as you can imagine, is sick jokes. And he did three months in prison for it. Now, I have a real problem with that. I don't think that means we're living in a free society if that can go on. Uh, the government has a hate crime website which talks explicitly about the notion of non-crime hate incidents, which they log and report. And those go into the statistics for, 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 hate, for hate crime. OK, so, so this, this is not the, the hallmark of a free society. We have to resist that. We have the Electronic Communications Act 2003, which, which criminalises anything online that you post online that could be deemed to be offensive which is such a nebulous, subjective thing. Um, and, and whereas a lot of the, the cases are people saying awful things that I don't agree with and I don't like, my solution to that is to stand up against those people and critique and mock and all the rest of it. Once you get the state involved, that's my limit. I think getting the state involved or, or, or trying to harass someone and trying to make sure they can't work anymore, that's the distinction to me. I, I think comedy is such an extraordinary thing because... On the one hand, we can have a conversation about it as a very serious business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, which is the way of doing this. Should I be it's being like, funnier? No, no, like, no. Well, <laughs> well, I sort of mean this. It's like sort of talking about sex, isn't it, really? Which is, it's, the, it's, it's in a way the most unsexy thing often yeah, to talk about sex. And it's very unfunny to talk about comedy, you know. Yeah. So people will, it's, it's a very serious business and so forth. But there's a part of me talking to you, we're talking about all this, and I just want to... Laugh. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. Well, that's the other thing about laughter, and and and, and what people forget is, of course, um, it's an involuntary response, isn't it? There was a, there was an article in the Guardian, and the headline was, uh, "If you laugh at Louis C.K. now, you are endorsing his worldview," as in you are tacit, tacitly agreeing with sexual uh, sexual misconduct. What a ridiculous thing to say. We laugh in in spite of ourselves sometimes. That, I laugh at things that I think I know I shouldn't laugh. Right, at. exactly, and that's part of human nature. And um, you know, and that's quite interesting. I like uh, this is why I, I set up this comedy night in London with Andy Shaw called Comedy Unleashed and the idea of that night is that we're, you know, we're going to allow comics to, to experiment that we don't consider it a safe space the potential for offence should always be there in comedy and it, and, it, and it always is there in comedy and I think that's something that you, you know, we should accept uh, and be adult about um, and that's you know that's part of it I don't want to go into I actually I personally I love the frisson of being offended uh, in a comedy context sometimes I love that moment where I think that's just I can't believe you did that I can't believe you said that and 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 you can pretend all you like that shock isn't a valuable comedic tool, but it really is. Because I mean, jokes are based on surprise. Yes, yes, that, yes, that's right. And and that's sometimes right. you you know the, the comedian. I'm shamed at laughing with some of the things I'm laughed at. Though. Right, exactly. That's that's that, and and it reminds you why you don't say those things in polite society. Yeah. Because you, it's the same. It's the cathartic thing with the Greeks, isn't it? You know, we 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 depict this violence, or we or they didn't depict it, but they talked about it. They described it. You always had the, the messenger come on and describe how someone was brutally dismembered or whatever. And that that purges. That's what catharsis means. Isn't it? It's a purgatory. It purges the, the 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 violent instincts within human nature, which do exist. So we have a similar thing with. So you're saying something 
I mean, in, maybe in simple terms, you're saying something that we all sort of think, right. but we're too polite to say. But by mm. saying it, you, you, as it were, open it out for some sort of observation and discussion. And yeah, and you and, know, and well, better, well, you're laughing at it. <laughs> you're laughing at it. The very fact that you're laughing at it is some kind of recognition that this isn't polite or acceptable. Yes. Right. So that's so. So this yes. is the mistake that people make. So so, you know, when um, you know, you castigate or attack uh. The, uh, like a group of rugby lads who sing yes. terrible songs, uh, uh, you know, misogynistic songs. But the the reason they sing the songs is because they are being transgressive. It is a, an acknowledgement of the taboo. Yes. That's why the songs work for them. Yes. Um, and if they actually endorsed the things that they're singing yes. about, they wouldn't be singing it and laughing about it. That's, yes, that, yes, yes, yes. And I know this sounds awful, but that's... That it is, is a transgressive... Na- I mean, yeah, it's yeah. why... I mean, to be credit crude about something... A fart is still one of the funniest things that can ever happen. Right, okay. I mean, exactly. it, it is. You know, Anything and... that punctures authority or pretension. Yes. And it's what you said earlier about, like, well, the priests are always in the, the, the old sort of old school farces. The, of course. The, you know, it's it's the authority figures being yes. undermined. It's their trousers are falling down. Yes. Sex as well, right? Yes, so, yes, yes. Um, yes. And, so, and, and, and you're, you're, you're after the new priesthood. That's what I believe. I, I think that these... That it, it just has all the hallmarks of a cult. Going back to the the Foucauldian stuff, all the 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 esoteric language. You know, they have their 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 own phrases on the front cover of the book. You'll notice in very faint lettering are lots of phrases like lived experience, uh, toxic masculinity. Um, I can't say there's. I mean, there's loads problematic um, uh, oppression. You see all of yeah. these sort of stuff. Disenfranchised. And some of the language that they use, it's almost like a code that they're using. Now we used to do the same thing when I was writing about Foucault and things like that. If you just use terms like hegemony, discourse, discursive. Then uh, you'd it would elevate your marks. You'd you tend to get better marks. In fact, my supervisor Robin Robin Robbins at Wadham he said to me about like a lot of the publishers don't understand this stuff. So you just load it with jargon and they just publish it anyway. And that's you know that's that's sort of the way to get through. And you see the same. And some of the language that they use is like quite dehumanising. You notice that woke people talk about uh, bodies. They talk about bodies a lot. But you know what about black bodies and what you know this got so weird dehumanising erasure. You get this. I'm not talking about the band. They talk about like the uh, you know why are you erasing this person existence um you're not you're, you're you're speaking you're arguing about something but they use these kind of these these terms that signal that you were in the club you know the code you know it's like knocking on the door and you know the password uh, and and it also signals that you're good much as with the brexit case much as voting brexit became uh evil and voting uh voting to remain equals good so this sort of very simplistic reduction of 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 of, of, of discourse and i really worry about that how long can you keep it all up well, I imagine it's quite a zeitgeisty thing. I mean, what you know, I'm. Ho- I mean, who knows? I think we're at the pinnacle, the point, the tipping point of the culture war. So it depends which way it goes. I've always thought that the left, once they messed up so badly in the election of Donald Trump, when in that whole situation, you know, um, I thought they would reflect and and think, how can we change things? How can we how can we do things better? And they didn't. They doubled down on everything. Um, and make that's a very worse. lefty type of criticism, doubling down. Yeah, but that, that, and that, but that is what they they are yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at every stage where I think, oh, you've just lost again. You've just lost again. Like so, the success of the Brexit party. What do we have? We have um, whole swathes of the media just 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 making things worse by saying, oh, it doesn't really count because if we add up all the other candidates, this mathematical prestidigitation they're doing, where they just kind of like bundle all the losers together and they didn't win. They didn't really win. Well, that's not going to work. Like people no. aren't stupid. No. People people have got the internet. Um and, and and still you have people I mean, I thought after the Brexit vote, maybe they'd stop saying, Oh yeah, well anyone who voted Brexit is racist. No, that's still going on. It's getting worse as far as I can see. You know, th- this is it's not it's not helpful. And um so what I'm hoping is 
the culture war will hopefully go the other way, where people will start to say, actually, this is going to excess. As I've said, I'm mocking the extremes. I will mock the extreme this right. This is a reductio ad absurdum. Yeah, exactly. Of the whole of the whole of, thing. That's of, the, that's the that's the point of it, isn't it? Exactly. So this is this is happening. This is a re- you are a reductio ad absurdum, trying exactly. to shine a light on this culture that you think is and just they, absurd. They absurd. they hopefully hopefully it helps that they can see the way that others perceive them. Because a lot of the time, because they are in their little echo chambers and they only talk to each other, the problem is they don't see how ridiculous they seem to everybody else. People must be so angry with you. Yeah, they are. They're furious. Absolutely. I mean, the, the venom I've had over this. Absolute fury. Um, but I'm afraid this is how people see them. And a little self-awareness goes a long way. They don't really have that. And if that helps, then that, that's great. I mean, it might just generate resentment amongst them, I'm hoping. But, but if we make this, <coughs> if we make it acceptable to mock these sort of self-appointed guardians of, of public rectitude, then that's a good thing. Because because it's that thing of mocking mocking the authority figure again, you know, it, it undermines them. I think I think, hopefully, if more and more people do this, then maybe the tipping point will go the other way, the way that I want it to go, which is where we uh, we get back to a you know a, a genuine leftist movement. That but it'd be terrible. It would be very terrible if your criticism of fake victimhood yeah. was used as a uh, a pretext for attacking people who were genuinely right. Victims. Exactly, but this is also why I make my 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 genuine political views absolutely transparent because I write political articles on Spiked. I write exactly what I think and I put them out there. Of course, the the problem with that is uh, a lot of the people on the left won't read Spiked because they they have an idea of what it is, which isn't accurate. Uh, and so you know, but that's the that's the polarized tribal uh, world of politics that we're living in at the moment. But all I can do is t- I put my views out there. People, I'm on record. People know what I actually think. Um, the people who argue against me, they tend to say, yeah, but that's not what you really think. I've intuited what you really think. And it's this uh, malevolent motive that I'm just ascribing to yeah. you. And, you know, and I, I can't argue with that because that's not a serious argument. Um, so I put my views out there. I mock, I explain, you know, I shouldn't really. I know you should never explain your jokes, but I've been very, yeah, 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 I yeah, have yeah. done in this case precisely for the reason <clears throat> that you you make. I don't want people to think that I am just having a pop at gay people or whatever, you know. Yeah. So hopefully it's clear well i know it's clear i know it's clear but... well this is it's been really great talking to you it's been this is confessions i've always started thinking i should ask people to confess something oh, because... I, i'm <laughs> confession for so many years you've been to confession oh many times oh yeah not for years though i should do you didn't laugh in confession you didn't you, there's no there's no uh... no there was a funny one though i, I went to, can i tell you I, yes. I went to confession in uh it was in aberystwyth actually and the um i was I'd done, I, uh, it was quite a sexual thing, I confess. And it was to do with actually, I think it was my first gay experience, actually. Oh, right. it, and it was in, it was a funny one because the way, the nature of the booth, it was through the, the metal grill, but I could see his legs sort of dangling out. <laughs> so it was quite a funny situation anyway. And uh, I confessed all that. And then straight afterwards, he jumped up and said, oh, so where are you going for holidays? And almost like he'd shut it off. And I, th- and I thought, oh my God, this is, it was so horrible. Because, of course, in his mind, when he's in the booth, he's representing God. Yes. When he's out of the booth, he's, he's your local priest, right? <laughs> so I didn't enjoy that at all. Whereas at least when I was a kid, when I used to go to confession as a kid, it was one of those old-fashioned boxes where you didn't have to see. It was all very kind okay. of, you know, so, okay. Uh, okay. so that was a bit okay. better. But, um, yeah, yeah I've been for a long time. Oh, very good. Well, you've just been now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> With a priest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true, yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming and talking Thanks to me. Thanks a lot. Nice Thanks for having me. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it. And do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing. And I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. Unheard.com.